I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reimagining Liberty, a podcast exploring the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. What's the relationship between libertarianism or radical liberalism and the ideas of the left? Most place them in clear and direct opposition and argue that liberty advocates should have more affinity for conservatism, at least in its American variety. My guest today argues otherwise. Akiva Malamet is a writer and philosopher and contributor to my old website, libertarianism.org. We discuss the shared concerns those of us who see radical liberty have with the political left, but also draw important distinctions between socialism and liberalism. Be sure to stick around to the end for a preview of the next episode of Reimagining Liberty, as well as to learn how you can listen to it two weeks early. You've argued in an article that I will link to in the show notes of today's episode that the tradition that later came to be known as libertarianism began in a shared set of common concerns with the political left. So what are those concerns? So if you think about where libertarianism comes from, what its root ideology is, it's usually understood as being liberalism and liberalism in the sense of the philosophical tradition that starts with, you know, John Locke. Um, that questions um, where the authority of the state comes from, what right it has to rule a subject. They asserts that every individual has certain inalienable rights and so on. Um, that kind of set of concerns, basically concerns about liberty and equality as core motivating values, I think are what define liberalism as an ideology from other ideologies. And I think of the concerns of people on the left, particularly um, as the left, as it developed out of liberalism, um, as being somewhat similar. So if you look at the criticisms offered by, let's say, Rousseau of traditional contract theory or uh, of Marx of kind of then liberal free market economics at the time, there are really concerns about that the equality and liberty that liberals promise hasn't been delivered on. So they're really concerned about the same kinds of things. That people don't have the autonomy that they should have, that they can't make the choices that they should be able to make, that people are exerting power over them that's unjustified for whatever reason. Um, and obviously there are details in those, in different thinkers' theories for that, that delineate what those problems, what those reasons are for particular reasons. For so it has to do with the sense of, uh, I mean, in many, for both Rousseau and Marx, it has, it has some degree about reclaiming a sense of alienation that um, modern mass society and markets have created. Um, it also has to do with creating a sense of um, egalitarian relationships in which people aren't seeing each other as um, uh, in, in situations in which one person was not seeing themselves as above another person for whatever reason. Um, and they see liberal society and market society as inimical to what should be relationships between people of free persons who are equal to one another, who have a stance of being worth the same, of deserving of the same rights, but that something about the institutions that liberalism has chosen has gotten that wrong. Um, and so in many ways, there are the same concerns being reiterated, but um, in a different way. So there's a lot to unpack there. And maybe the place to start is someone listening to this might have a sneaking suspicion that you are glossing over a, a genuine disagreement that's not just 
in the details, but is fundamental to the two worldviews, which we'll we'll call for our purposes here the kind of socialist, communist, far left, and what we might call liberalism or perhaps libertarianism. And that is about the nature of equality, because you said both are concerned with equality, and you mentioned power relations and hierarchy, but someone coming from a more libertarian direction would say, look, the either I don't care about equality. What I care about is equal rights, which is different, or um, the, the equality that I care about is equality before the law, is, is again equality of kind of the weight of the law on me in terms of restrictions, whereas the person on, on the left, the socialist, what they care about is material equality in addition to, say, the hierarchies that you mentioned. But the main motivating factor is material equality, and they are willing to subvert basically all other forms of equality or, or rights to seeing a world of material equality, which we know from, say, like Nozick's arguments, you know, if you want to produce material equality, you're going to have to be really restrictive on on the liberties that libertarians or liberals care about. So is there a way to square that circle or is that a mischaracterization of the kind of equality that you think the left is concerned about? So I think the difficulty here, and this is true when you're talking about any philosophical political tradition, is that there is no the left in the same way that there is no libertarianism or conservatism. There are people which advocate certain ideas and we call those things left the left or libertarianism or conservatism. You know, ideologies are more like families of ideas rather than kind of strict, obvious doctrine. So I would say that there are people on the left for whom material equality is the most important thing, for whom, you know, they're concerned about distributing goods and stuff. Um, and I think you see that prominently, let's say, in like Rawls's work. There was a lot of discussion about this distributive effects of equality, although he's often considered a liberal as well. That's kind of interesting debate. Um, but also in Marx, where you're talking a lot about who has stuff and who doesn't have stuff. But I do think that for a lot of prominent figures on the left, you see dual concerns, not only for material equality, but also for uh, equality of status, or what Elizabeth Anderson calls relational equality. Um, there is a concern that not only does the stuff mean that some people have a certain amount of resources and other people don't, but that these disparities in resources mean that some other some people can exert power over other people that's morally undesirable, right? So the problem isn't just that, um, you know, let's say for Marx that, um, you know, the capitalists have more resources than the workers. It's that the capitalists are able to exert a kind of power over the workers by using them um, as means to the ends of the capitalist, by not treating them as free individuals, by, you know, he has this notion that their surplus labor is being stolen from them and that they're not giving the full fruits of their labor. That kind of moral concern is actually awfully, uh, awfully Lockean in the way that it thinks about how people ought to be treated in the sense that you deserve the fruits of your labor, you deserve to be able to... Um, make the choices you want to make without hindrance from other people. Um, so I think there are really different threads among people on the left, some of which have to do with material goods and some of which have to do with relational goods, but they're actually not easily separable. Um, and so in that respect, you might 
I think there are actually more commonalities than you might suppose. Um, I, 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 would, I think it's actually quite rare to find a left thinker who only cares about distribution of stuff. They also often care significantly about the way that human beings relate to one another. And if you think about, and I would say also, it's not like people like libertarians or liberals only care about relational equality or, you know, equal rights or equality before the law, because we also care about stuff, right? Why do we talk about economic growth so much? We talk about economic growth a lot because it levels the playing field of people's ability to do things with their lives, about being able to make the choices they want to make about how their lives become easier because of innovation and so on, right? That is an equality of people's positive freedom, of people's ability to make choices, the kind of choices they want to make that liberals and libertarians actually care a lot about. Um, and it's, I think, one of the primary motivating arguments for markets is that that's exactly what they allow people to do, is to have give people more control over their lives and for more people to have more access to more stuff distributed more evenly than in non-market societies. The what we'll call flattening of hierarchies concern, which I think you're right, is very present on the left, and it also shows up a lot in, say, left market anarchists or more market friendly leftists, is something where again I I wonder if what we might call traditional libertarians or mainstream libertarians might be concerned, and their concern is that. A lot of what we might describe as unjust hierarchies, whether this is in the workplace or over resources or so on, are in fact just the the natural result of respecting private property and respecting freedom of association. And so if we allow people to acquire property, some people in a market are going to end up with more property than others. So this is the the like material egalitarian concern that some leftists have, but most free marketers aren't aren't worried about those kinds of inequalities as long as they came about through free choices, and and then also what freedom of association says is I'm allowed to associate with you or not, which means that I'm also allowed to economically exchange with you or not based on my own voluntary preferences. And so if I – if you want something from me, like you want a wage from me or you want to trade with me or you want resources from me, I can put conditions on that and I can say, you know, you want this wage? Well, you've got to show up at this time and do the following job and so on. And that ends up looking like a power relationship because I now have a say over your behavior. Um, we can always decouple. Right, like you can you can walk away from that from that employment relationship, but it's not clear where the concern is or why this is an unjust sort of power versus a perfectly just choice of who to associate with. And I think the worry that a lot of libertarians would have is if you become concerned about those kinds of power hierarchies, say employment relationships, then. You're going to have to – the answer to it is going to have to be reining in private property and our ability to acquire or um, divest ourselves of property of our own free will or and or freedom of association 
in the sense of I'm going to compel you to be in a relationship with workers or compel you to be in a relationship with a boss um, or with just coworkers in general based on certain outside rules that we have imposed upon you. Is that is that a fair characterization? Is that a fair concern? Or is that something are we is that libertarian response missing something about the way that that you or people on the left um, or kind of more left libertarians are thinking about power relationships? Yeah, so I think the standard libertarian move, which is to say that all market relations or most market relations are sort of legitimate simply because they are voluntary and misses something important. I don't disagree with them that that basic voluntary status of you offer me a job, I choose to take it is true, but it's also true that I may choose to take that job under a variety of circumstances. I may choose to take that job because I don't have a lot of other opportunities for whatever reason, because of my life circumstances, because of the way the job market is structured, whatever else. And that the fact that my choices are constrained and my my relative ability to choose uh, to choose one option among others is going to have constraints um, means that there is going to be um, a diminishment of power or a diminishment of freedom on my part um, to to, cho to choose freely, um, and that means that we should be less um, less easily comfortable simply with saying that something is legitimate just because it was chosen. Um, because if it was chosen under in situations in which my ability to choose is constrained, um, then the freedom of that choice is under debate. Which is not to say that it's unfree choice, but it's simply to say that choices are always on a spectrum, right? Any economist will tell you that everything has an opportunity cost, everything has a transactions cost. There are always a cost associated with choices you make and how you negotiate things in the world. Um, and so relative to the fact, relative to how free people are to make their choices and relative to how free they are to bargain for the kind of employment they would like to make or the kind of trades they would like to engage in, I think that's something to care about. If you care about freedom, you should care about people's ability to make choices that are more free, that give them a wider, way to, wider range of options that on terms that are more agreeable to them rather than less. And I think in many ways, those are the kinds of things that people on the left care about that libertarians should also care about. Because ultimately, this is a debate about whether people's autonomy is, is really being maximized. Um, I don't think that caring about those things normatively necessarily leads you to any particular policy or institutional conclusions. And I would say that many of the best libertarian arguments are about how people's choices are constrained, about how bargaining power is constrained, about how monopolies occur because the state gets involved with the market and thereby props up um, situations in which business owners can exert power that's not based on whether they're genuinely providing value to consumers, but because they have political favors. And obviously that's something that the whole literature on rent-seeking highlights um, kind of endlessly about how that takes place. But that can happen, I wanna say that this can happen even without um, political favors. There can be situations in which a business is simply very dominant because of um, its competitive power and has a lot of market power and that relatively speaking it has more space in the marketplace um, than other businesses which creates fewer options for people. Now the answer to that might just be 
you know, wanting to, might just be that we, you need uh, someone to come in to interrupt that space and so that you have more competition. Um, but the fact that in a particular slice of time, one business has a lot of market share and can therefore all, therefore the, the opportunities that, or, or a few businesses have a certain amount of market share and the opportunities that their employees have because there's a business with a certain amount of market share or the opportunities that their consumers have because there's a business with a certain amount of market share are diminished. That's something to be concerned about, even if we have different policy solutions for how to change the equilibrium of power that a particular entity might have. And this gives an opportunity to make um, a point that I think is really central to a better way of advocating for political and individual economic social liberty and so on and a problem I see with the way that a lot of people in in the libertarian movement approach these questions is there's a – what I'll call like a reasoning backwards from concern or reasoning backwards from policy preferences. Um, so the way that this happens is by and large, libertarians don't like the left and see the left as a significant threat. Um, and a lot of that is historical in the sense that much of the American libertarian movement spent its time fighting back rightly against communism um, and that one of the results of that was making alliances with conservatives. And so you have a lot of then conservatives in the movement who bring a dislike of the left. Uh, but what it means in practice is if the left is concerned about something, its response is typically therefore government. Like therefore, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Elizabeth Anderson, who had wrote this her book Private Government is a very interesting book that raises very interesting questions about the nature of employee-employee relationships. But her response to then fixing them is we need heavier regulations, like pro-labor regulations and controls on the structures of firms and so on. But we need to get the government involved, which free marketers and libertarians and liberty advocates are at the very least skeptical of. But what ends up happening in practice is because the people who have these concerns push for more government, therefore we should not have those concerns. You know, like we should dismiss those concerns, we should ignore those concerns, we should potentially attack them. Um, rather than, as I think you just said, saying these are legitimate concerns, we should worry about them, they raise real questions, but the solution is not going to be more government. In fact, it's going to be less. Um, and it also, I think, not to get too long-winded here, can lead a lot of liberty advocates into a kind of ill-considered status quo bias where they become defenders of the status quo because they assume that the structure of businesses, the structure of the economy and so on just is the free market. Um, and so this is – anarcho-capitalists imagine that we would still have these giant corporations with employer-employee relationships and so on in a – you know, in an anarchist society because they look around and that's how businesses are organized now when it's a real open question whether – in the absence of state intervention, 
these firms would have these structures in the first place or how much of our current thing is a reaction to you know the large the large multinationals and the large companies throughout history have often been propped up by government or by rent seeking or by penalizing rivals or pushing for regulations that enable that they can abide by but are too expensive for startups and so on um and and so i think to like kind of taking a broader view on your point one of the things that we as advocates for liberty should be aware of is whether we're dismissing concerns simply because we don't like the people who typically hold them um and we should look around and say the the organizational structures we see in our current society may not be whether that is the nature of firms or the the structure of the economy or the the social hierarchies or the culture might not be as kind of natural um, derivations from free choices as we initially imagine them to be. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a lot of underrating, you know, um, this gets into interesting debates about what we mean by capitalism or the free market when people use these terms. Some people just mean whatever is going on right now is capitalism or is the free market with some small deviations. And I think the argument that I would make, but a lot of, say, left market anarchists would make, other kinds of left libertarians would make, is not that um, what we have now is capitalism or the free market with some small deviations. We actually have some enormous deviations from what a free society would look like in the forms of corporate welfare and regulation um, and so on. And that a free society would involve, would, could potentially involve very different structures of, of firms, um, and of the way that markets are structured. Now, I don't take this as axiomatic because I think there are reasons why large corporations exist. You know, Ronald Coase wrote a very famous article on the nature of the firm saying that firms are sort of islands of socialism in a sea of capitalism. And the reason that they exist is because of transactions costs, because it's costly to try and engage in a trade for every given service that you might need. And so sometimes it's easier to put all the costs of different kinds of services into one, one organization or one unit so that then all of those can be inputs into a final product and there's certain it becomes slightly cheaper on certain margins. So there are reasons why firms exist, right? But I do think it's very reasonable to say that there may be fewer large firms or there might be more competition between firms or there may, might be more variety in organization of firms, maybe firms that are more worker-driven or whatever, um, in a situation in which there are fewer regulations that protect businesses, that hand business favors, and so on. Um, and also to point out that many of the regulations that are well-intended, that are proposed by the left, well-intended, uh, in a well-intended way, are actually things that reinforce the structure of um of hierarchy and create, give certain businesses undue power. So for example, it is not, um, it's not an accident that the strongest advocates for higher minimum wage are Amazon and Walmart and Target and large companies like that because they know that they can absorb the costs of a higher minimum wage more easily can their, than can their smaller competitors. And that just is one example among many of the ways in which um, the arguments for markets can be and should be arguments against against a system of state-sponsored privilege and against um, power relations that 
are not not necessarily are that exist in the world, but are not the way the world has to be. Well, that brings up a, a nice distinction that you make in that that essay that I mentioned at the beginning, which again be in the show notes and you should all check it out. You say that one of the divergences, because we've talked about these these like common foundations and shared concerns, but one of the divergences between the two groups is that we'll call them socialists are concerned with the means of production and see the means of production as the crux around which reform is needed and power relationships hang and bad stuff happens. Um, while liberals worry more about the means of predation. Can you distinguish those a bit and go into a bit of that difference? Sure. So the means of production, means of predation um, distinction is basically one I strike uh, between uh, a focus on who has stuff, who has particular control over particular resources at a given time, and who has control over institutions, over the rules that society uh, functions over, that then guide the different decisions that people will make about production and consumption. And I think it's more significant to look at the rules of the game about the legal and, so, and cultural institutions that structure how people make production and consumption decisions than to look at the given distribution of resources at a given time. Because ultimately, what's important, and this is a sort of Robert Nozick point, is how people acquire their resources, what they do with them, are they providing something that is of value to other people, and so on, and not just whether they have a lot of stuff. Um, and so, you know, the the people on the left tend to focus on, oh, this business has a, has a big market share, or this capitalist has a lot of money, or whatever. Um, but what's much more significant is, are the rules that allowed them to acquire those things fair? Are they able to acquire those things in a way that made, in such a way that uh, was voluntary, where they had to provide a service in order to acquire them, um, and so on? Um, and what's what distinguishes the the rules of predation uh, in particular is basically the fact that the state, unlike in the market, is an instrument of violence. It's a system under which people can force other people to do things um, with uh, either with force or with the threat of force. Um, and because of that, people who have access to state power can make decisions, very specific decisions for who uh, is able to do what and who has what stuff without any real regard for whether that distribution has or is providing some kind of public service or is providing value to the community in some sort of way. And in contrast, means of production um, can provide you with a certain amount of, of power, um, but that power is always going to be unstable and contingent on whether you're providing um, something valuable on the market, whereas um, means of predation does not do that. So the sociologist Franz Oppenheimer, who I cite in the essay, um, distinguishes between the political means and the economic means for acquiring resources. So the economic means is providing something that someone wants, and the political means is forcing other people to give you something um, based on what they themselves have produced through their free labor. Um, and I think people on the left often overly focus on the economic means without recognizing differences between 
uh, people based on different ways that the political means are structured. I can imagine someone seeing a potential contradiction, though, in what you just said as it relates to the conversation we had earlier in in this episode, and that is we talked about how much of the existing structure of the economy and giant firms and what people on the left would refer to as capitalism when they mean something different from just a free market economy, uh, that that a lot of that is the result of rent-seeking and other uses of the state to, to prop yourself up, to acquire and maintain wealth by limiting competition, driving out potential competitors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if that's all true, if basically looking around at the economy as exists right now, um, we're not looking at a perfect – like the outcome of a perfectly free market, but either something – but instead something that's been heavily influenced by state intervention and these means of predation as you mentioned it, then – and given that tracing out the full chain of causes for any particular person's quantity of property, position in life, and so on is going to be exceedingly complicated – Right, like this is the 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 argument against you know you make the case that Nozick taken seriously be a radical redistributionist because there is not his his justice and acquisition and transfer there are you know countless examples throughout history of this wealth being non justly acquired non justly transferred and so on and so if we decided to rectify all of that it would mean huge changes to the current distribution. Um, but the argument against that is it is exceedingly complicated to know all of that history, um, to tease all of that out. And so couldn't someone on the socialist left say, look, yes, it is It is possible that I am – that there are – there could be bigness that is perfectly just. But as a general rule of thumb, if someone is a billionaire or a company has extraordinarily large market share for a long period of time, it is more likely than not that it was the result of what we call the means of predation versus the means of production. And so given that we can't figure out all of those lines of causation in every instance, it's better to just err on the side of assuming it's unjust versus just. Right. I think that's a fair concern, um, particularly, as you said, because it's so hard to tease out the very long. I mean, human history is the history of theft and violence. It's not the history of peaceful exchange, um, even in under conditions of, of relatively freer markets and so on. Um, so it's re certainly reasonable to have that concern. I think... Um, when we talk about institutions and when we talk about real world distributions of resources, we're never talking about a pure type or a pure version of anything, right? The, the, there is no platonic form of capitalism that will ever exist ever. And there is no platonic form of socialism that it will ever exist. But what we can talk about is relative inputs, right? And I'm not necessarily going to be able to trace back all the ways in which, you know, state power has influenced, um, someone's market holdings. But I don't think it's unreasonable to stress the idea that the, that when that someone gains gets uh is successful in the market, 
there are meaningful social contributions that they have made that are not solely the result of state privilege, while acknowledging that state privilege can also be part of that input, right? So, like, when Jeff Bezos invented Amazon as first, like, a book, book sale company and then this, you know, worldwide distribution center for all kinds of goods, um, that was a genuine innovation in logistics. Um, and in how people can buy and sell stuff. Now, it's also true that Amazon gets all kinds of tax breaks for where they build their headquarters, um, and they get special kinds of, you know, regulatory carve-outs and so on. But the basic contribution of a a change in logistics of how people buy stuff and this amazing system of sell of, you know, shipping very quickly and being able to get your stuff in two days or whatever, all that stuff is a genuine innovation even acknowledging for um, all of the, the cronyism and the problems. Um, I, think, I think it's problematic to have a de facto assumption about where stuff comes from, that it is de facto just the way many libertarians do, that it's simply a result of quality or exchange. And I think it's problem on the left to assume that it is de facto um, unjust and simply the result of this kind of ill-gotten, you know, corruption and exploitation. Because in the real world, everything is messy. And so what we should do is look on a case-by-case basis as best we can and assess whether a given person or a given business or whatever, what the ratio of, you know, um, of, 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 um, of gains is from politics versus providing value in the economy. Um, and that's not something that we can do in an abstract, generalizable way. I really like, and this gets back to my point about choices um, and about people's relative freedom to make choices. Choices are never free. Gaining, uh, making economic gains is never, is never an absolute good or bad. Choices are never totally free or unfree. Life in general is on a much more nuanced and spectrum, much more of a spectrum of relative components than it is a binary of all good or all bad or all free or all unfree, then I think most people want to make it. Because most people want, or a lot of people want to treat their politics in a kind of syllogistic, um, hyper, kind of religious way, where we think about, um, you know, free or unfree or legitimate holdings versus illegitimate holdings in the same way that you might a religious person might think about the sacred and the profane, where there's the realm of everything that's good and holy and untouched by anything problematic. And then there's the realm of evil. You know, there's heaven and there's hell. Um, and I think we should be very careful about not turning our moral intuitions into a kind of religious set of categories where things have this very absolute um, character. That actually leads nicely, I think, into my next question, which is about what to do about it. So let's let's grant, and I think it's perfectly reasonable to grant, that these the concerns that get raised by people on the left that are often dismissed by libertarians are actually genuine concerns that we should – libertarians or liberals or just liberty advocates generally should care more about power relationships outside of strictly – the state having power over you than we typically do, um, that we should listen more to the 
the worries and ideas of people who have those concerns as opposed to simply dismissing them or thinking that they are merely calls for unjust state interaction and so on. But if we take those concerns seriously, then we can't simply ignore trying to come up with solutions to them. We need to say, like, if it's a real concern, then we should want to fix it, right? And doing so, obviously, like the socialists say, the answer is, I mean, depending on what kind of socialist you are, it can be, well, let's have the state own all of the means of production. Um, or it can mean more heavy regulations, or it can mean a much more robust social safety net so that people have a greater ability to exit from undesirable relationships, employment relationships, economic relationships, and so on. Whatever it is, all of these are inject the state more in some way. For a, say, left market anarchist who has these concerns, um, their response is, basically abolish the state, which abolishes the means of predation because people can no longer use it to construct advantages for themselves, and then things will get better. Um, for people who are suffering in these hierarchies of power, in relationships of domination, and so on, that latter solution probably sounds um, either unpersuasive or potentially Pollyannish, but at the very least, it's not going to do anything about the situation right now, right? Because we've got the state, we've got the structures in place. Um, it's abolishing the state is, let's just be charitable and call it a long-term project. Um, and and even if we were able to abolish it next week, which I mean, abolishing it in a week probably would cause a lot of problems. Uh, the it's going to take a while for social relationships and economic relationships to kind of readjust, you know. Um, and people are hurting right now, and so they might say, "Yeah, I agree with you that the state is is itself a relationship of domination; that it is based in." violence or at least the threat of violence and so on. But given that people are hurting right now, stop telling me to just kind of wait around for things to work themselves out. Let me use this very powerful tool that I have to make things better, even on the margins right now. And I'll also put some time into maybe reforming the criminal justice system so the state doesn't have quite as much violence in its execution, right? Like, so I guess to the the short version of this is is the pro liberty approach essentially utopian thinking that maybe gives us something nice to aim at? You know, like a, a utopia can be just like kind of give us it can be our north star. Like that's that's what we want to we ultimately be great to get there, and we can kind of judge solutions about how about whether they move us in that direction. But we've got people in awful relationships right now. We've got people who are hurting right now. Um, and we guys, we can't wait around for you weirdo libertarians to get it together enough to let things work themselves out on their own. Yeah. I mean, I think that's not, that's a problem that's not just true for libertarians. It's true for anyone who has a kind of 
um, grand vision of politics of the way that society should be, um, which is that their vision might be really awesome um, and they might really believe that it'll make everyone better, but getting there would take a lot of work um, and is an uphill battle. Um, whatever politics you ascribe to, whether it's libertarian or socialist or, or something else. Um, I, I think that's why think tanks exist, right? Because you want to have solutions that ads for problems on the margin that try and resolve the issue in a particular industry or a particular community, um, you know, in some area of life that people experience without changing everything everywhere all at once. Um, so, you know, I'll, I think that just means that we should, people should be willing to have, a, should be, should have North Stars. I think it's good and valuable to have a vision of the way you would like the world to ultimately be. Because if you strive too much for um, being a realist, then you end up having no real vision at all and no real way to distinguish what you want from the status quo. Um, but at the same time, you also need to recognize that getting to wherever it is you want to get to is going to be challenging and that each change is going to have to be small and piecemeal um, and, and difficult. Um, and so, you know, if you see that someone is suffering in a, in a like, you know, the if you just pick one issue area, like, I don't know, the immigration system in America, right? My, I'm a, you know, public advocate of open borders. We're not going to get to open borders anytime soon. But in the meantime, saying that we can let in another, I don't know, 100,000 people a year or whatever is more doable and is something we should advocate for. And, you know, we do the best we can on the margin. And I think the other Another response is – and this is my frustration with a lot of my friends on the left with whom I share a lot of concerns – is a kind of willingness to be, I guess, blasé about the violence inherent in the system, to, to just hand wave away the fact that every time you engage in state action, you are threatening people with violence – um, and I've had, you know, it seems it is obviously true, even though I've had people push back on me on this, that every law is a license to use violence on the part of the state. Like it just that's what it is. It wouldn't be a law otherwise. It would simply be a suggestion. It has to be backed by force or the threat of force. And that's a big deal. You know, like injecting violence into our relationships is a really big deal that ought to concern us deeply um, and shouldn't just be dismissed because, oh, you know, that's the way we've always done things or how else are you going to solve these problems or, you know, the violence is really only there for people who aren't going along with what the rest of us agreed to and they really should or so on and so forth um, and that – that that broader concern becomes acute in a lot of the solutions that people on the left give. And so it's not just a matter of I want to act now. I don't want to wait for freedom to work these problems out on its own. But rather the solutions that you're giving – well, in a lot of cases don't really work, right? Like that's that's what – you know when you mentioned think tanks, that's what a lot of libertarian think tanks spend their time doing is saying like even, even if we set all those concerns aside, the solution that you have just – you on the left have just articulated this problem is not going to solve the problem and may actually make the problem worse. Uh, but 
it's it's also it's just to say like look you're not actually making the world better by injecting more violence into it um and and so even if that looks like we are ignoring the problem we're not we're just saying the solution should not be violence and you should not rush headlong into violence and i really wish that more people on the left i mean there are some of them like tankies are perfectly happy to acknowledge like i love the violence more of that please but i gotta say most people on the left are not evil in that way you know um but i just that's my that's my big frustration is these like very caring people who are very good at pointing out relationships of domination in the private sector and raising concerns about them just seem willfully unaware of or uncaring about this enormous dominating force and how much damage it does. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a problem. I agree with you. Um, One of my, uh, I forget if this was like, Elizabeth Warren or Nancy Pelosi or one of one of those people um, who said that government is just, you know, what we do together, things we do together as a community or something like that. Right. I think I um, tracked it down and it's attributed often to Barney Frank, but it may be apocryphal. Right. But anyway, um, it's probably uh, uh, anyway, that that way of thinking about government is an approach I find endlessly frustrating um, and frankly laughable. Um, and so I do agree that there are people who think like that, um, and I wish they wouldn't. Um, I think more honest people on the left will acknowledge that what they are endorsing is violence, but simply think that that's the only way to solve the problem. And so it's incumbent on us to say that there are other ways to solve this problem. Um, and some problems are hard, like, you know, the debates about how you like that anarchists get into about how you provide public goods without a state. Those are hard problems um, and aren't just, well, violence can't be solved with simply violence is bad in a kind of, you know, deontological hand wave. Um, I think, I think we, we would have better conversations if people treated institutions, this gets back to my whole platonic forms thing, in less idealistic terms. Like institutions are not, what I think what happens is we, we have a value and then we assume that the institution simply is the fulfillment of that value. They are the same thing, right? Markets are liberty. The state is community, right? Rather than this is a way that this value could possibly be advanced, right? Um, and when we move away from the identification of the value with the institution and think about an institution simply as a way that this value could be advanced, we can have a more, um, I think, better dialogues, a more open conversation, a more adult conversation um, about the way the world really is and how messy the world really is and how about how all human institutions are just attempts at trying to achieve some goal and not the goal itself. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Akiva. Now, here's a preview of the next episode of Reimagining Liberty with special guest Trevor Burris of the Free Thoughts Podcast. 
no one is ever in an argument, let's say at a bar or a barbecue or whatever. There's never going to be a time to the nature of human personalities that you would do the kind of West Wing where someone just absolutely with logic just bowls someone over and absolutely turn you know says well you now you have no other thing to do except for completely agree with me like people are not going to do that on the spot your job as a communicator is to be reasonable in a very important way and to like plant seeds what happens in the best case scenario is that they walk away from this conversation over the next week say like you know that guy i met at this party was talking about what's wrong with public schooling and like although i was really fighting him at the time it keeps creeping back into my head and i think he might have had some points that's the best you can ask for and i say that from like a cato standpoint too i always you know tell new colleagues and stuff if they're going to go give a speech or do a debate the real people that matter here are the audience and they should walk away being like that libertarian dude was like kind of reasonable in a really kind of disturbing way. I'd never thought about those things before and like I'd never heard a libertarian communicate in that way. That's your goal. If you'd like to hear my conversation with Trevor two weeks early, as well as get access to our online community to discuss episodes and anything else with me and your fellow listeners, become a Reimagining Liberty supporter. Look for the link in the show notes or head to reimagininglibertycom slash subscribe. Mm-hmm.